Hey guys, it's me, your host, Cece. Welcome back to Menace to Medicine for part two of our interview with Dr. Kunar. Thank you so much for joining us and please enjoy. Well, still on the topic of surgery, so what is the longest surgery you have ever done? Oh, I don't know. Like, uh, in terms of one operation, it's probably gone on for about a day and a half. Wow. Uh, oh my God. Uh, but sometimes I've done, wow. I've been involved in operations that have been sort of back to back. So uh, the longest period of time of sort of continuous operative activity without any noticeable sleep, apart from maybe a bit of st- snatched fragments in between, yeah. was about three days where we did three lung transplant and retrievals so you've got to go and get the organs put the organs in and then go out again we did three of those back to back so wow. kind of fixed operations uh, yeah wow wow <laughs> i was yeah i was not expecting i was expecting like 13 hours maybe or <laughs> three yeah. days wow. wow wow that was a lot of respect <laughs> I don't mean Okay. I, okay. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't have any grey hairs then. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that would have scared me, you know. <laughs> okay, so our next question is, we all watch movies and shows that have those dramatic scenes where a doctor uses a pen to decompress a tension pneumothorax. Yeah. And the question of the century is, have you or anyone else ever done this, or is it purely fiction? No, no, we've, I've, I've done it not infrequently. I mean, it's not for a thoracic surgeon. It's not a rare thing to do. Oh wow! Or okay. just like wait, not with the pen, right? Though with actual surgical. Yeah. Usually, it's with a, 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 a well. In in the kind of casualty department when I was junior, I probably just did it with a, a big needle. Ah. Uh, now the sort of situation in which I see it mostly is when the patient has just gone to sleep. Yeah. When oh. when they're on, when, when we switch them from breathing by themselves to the machine breathing for them, yeah. what happens is machine is when you right just both of you just breathe in now breathe in big breath in. Okay, when you breathe in, what happens is your tummy, uh, your diaphragm goes down, yeah. and so yeah. you're actually sucking the air in. Yeah. Okay. Because you're you're increasing the capacity of your chest. You, so by increasing the volume of the chest, you lower the intrathoracic pressure. Yeah. And it goes below atmospheric pressure and air flows in from the outside into your lungs. Oh, okay? Yeah. Now, when the machine is doing it for you, so we've now put the patient to sleep and we've, we've given them drugs to paralyze them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now the machine needs to blow the air into them. So instead of it being a sucking process, now what's happening is the air is being blown into them. Now, when that happens... Somebody can get a pneumothorax, so they, yeah. a, a lung, but they've got a bit of emphysema, their lungs are a bit weak, it pops, and air starts coming out of the lung. Yeah. And it's, it can't escape from the rib cage, and the pressure starts to build up, and you, you can get a tension pneumothorax. Now, oh. clinically, in the operating theatre, the anaesthetist will say the patient's a bit hard to ventilate, and I'll say, have the airway pressure's gone up, and they'll say yes. And then, so what, what we'll do is we'll tap on the chest. Yeah. And if one side sounds more hollow than yeah. the other, make a little cut. Hopefully, this is the side you're going to operate on anyway. Yeah. And then, uh, to be honest, I'll just push a finger through the ribs, between wow. the ribs, yeah. because, because you know, uh, the you, are you both doing physics? 
I'm doing it. She's doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So pressure equals force over area, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's actually the only equation I can remember from physics. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and the, the, so the point is, is that you can actually push your way through once you've breached the skin because yeah. the skin is very, very tough and flexible. It resists it, yeah. but you can actually push your way through. And uh, or you can do it with less force using a fine instrument. A finger is very safe, though. Yeah, and yeah. It, it, then you'll have a rush of air coming out and the tension in the thorax will be relieved and then wow. you can get on with the operation. Wow. Wow. I thought it was going to be more dramatic. But... Yeah, that <laughs> is dramatic. No, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No, no. Yeah. You, you know, it's. It, I mean, it is dramatic, but it's also not dramatic because what you do, what what a surgeon doesn't want is you don't want to have any drama. You just want things to go step or by step yeah. without yeah. The drama. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay, so uh, this is more about specialties, I guess, or something that you enjoy. So mesothelial massagery. So um, it's obviously a cancer caused by asbestos. Yeah. And we just wanted to ask, there is a common complication, so atrial fibrillation. Have you encountered this issue before? Uh, how would you go about fixing it? Uh, not fixing it, but like approaching Sorry? the situation. Approaching. Yeah. yeah, approaching. Approaching <laughs> atrial fibrillation. Yes. Well, so the, 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 people will meet atrial fibrillation in the, under different circumstances. Yeah. So I will meet it most usually actually after the operation so two or three days after the operation is the time classically when patients get uh, thoracic surgery patients get atrial fibrillation why do they get it then probably because they start to move around a bit more the whatever we did to them during the operation is kind of wearing off and what so they come out of the operation yes they've had the operation they're, they're physiologically perfect yeah and uh, if it's gone well, the anaesthetist done their job. And then over the next few days, things happen. One of the causes of atrial fibrillation is low potassium ah. in, in the blood. And that can happen for a variety of reasons after an operation. So what I'll usually see is I'll see somebody who suddenly says they feel a bit short of breath or they've got some palpitations or they feel, feel lightheaded. Yeah. And we'll with atrial fibrillation, the first thing to assess is is the patient actually compromised and if they are it's a medical emergency and you need to do things quickly yeah but most people will not be so we will do some blood tests is their potassium low correct it is their oxygen low correct it do they need some more fluids to correct it we do do simple things to correct and then there's a bunch of medicines you can use to correct it and if those medicines don't work and you've got the potassium right and they're otherwise okay you can give them a little electric shock to the heart which we do with people asleep we give them a little bit of general anesthetic give them a little little electric shock to the heart and most people if their heart's otherwise okay it'll recover okay yeah thank you and our last question in this segment is recently in november last year you started a medical series on bbc called surgeons at the edge of life where you operated on a patient who was suspected of having COVID after presenting with respiratory problems. But after the deterioration of her health, a chest x-ray was taken and it showed that she had a rare tumour in her right bronchus. The surgery performed was a sleeve resection. Talk us through what this is and what your thought process was while preparing for and during the surgery. Yeah, sure. Um, So a sleeve resection is when one in the chest 
removes a piece of airway yeah. or pulmonary artery and rejoins it in such a way as minimum lung tissue is removed. So okay. it's a form of lung sparing surgery. Wow. And the in this particular case, um, with this particular tumour and the fact it had caused obstruction, there was going to be a lot of inflammation around the area. And what that means is things are going to be very sticky yeah. and difficult to dissect and difficult to separate from each other. And that means that the risk of bleeding is much greater. Yeah. So that so in terms of what I was thinking about before the operation or preparing for is I was thinking through the whole operation, yeah. but I was principally thinking about one, how would I deal with bleeding? Yeah. And two, uh, what would happen if I couldn't rejoin the bits of the body together? Ooh, and okay. in that case, I'd have, I would have had to lose the lung. Sure. Yeah. And that has that's not something you want to do because at the moment you, this person is going to lose no working lung. Yeah. And so they're only going to be improved by the operation. Whereas if you remove a whole lung, uh, the heart has to work harder, you have less lung capacity, and there's yeah. a whole bunch of complications that can follow removal of a lung that we'd rather avoid. Yeah, wow. Thank you for talking us through that. Okay, Okay. so our last segment, um, well, second last segment, so we have our ICU segment, so ICU University, so where we'll ask you questions for the future medical students. So number one, what advice do you have for the future medics slash surgeons like us? Uh, more specifically, what would be your message to the next generation of doctors? Okay, um, I would say in addition to what I've just you know been talking about, yeah. um, I would say enjoy the journey, and I I, th I I think that it's really important to understand that medical school, being a doctor. And whatever comes, you know, after being a doctor, it's all part of a journey. Yeah. And it's, a, it's a continuum. And yes, you know, you graduate, you do your MRCS or your MRCP or your GP or whatever. Yeah. They're just like points on the journey. Yeah. And enjoy the moment. Be in the now. Yeah. That's what I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of what we've talked about in a previous episode. Yeah. Where we talked about how you need to focus on the short-term goals yes. and then you can build up to get to like the long-term bigger picture yeah. and enjoy the journey. So, yeah. Okay. And our next question is, many students in year 12 currently are starting to prepare for interviews later on this year. What are some top tips you can give to help them ace their interviews? Uh... Uh, well, it's very easy to see, say be yourself, but I think that's really important. I think try and relax. Yeah. Um, the uh, it's really important as a doctor to be able to communicate yeah. and to hear and listen to what the people are saying. So go to the interviews and listen to the question. Yeah. And the person. It wants to find out about you, and I, I, I think what they, what they, what they're looking for is people who can communicate. So uh, just talk, ask lots of people uh, the, the, the 
questions that you you guys are asking me you know um and uh and remember you don't have to give the right answer there is no right answer often yeah but you just need to justify your answer okay and and nobody expects you to know i mean honestly they don't expect you to know anything beyond what you're going to learn in a levels at all yeah um yeah what else i mean uh, i don't know if you, any of you read the paper anymore but you know look look at the news yeah. um, look at the student bmj mm-hmm. uh yeah. british medical journal don't try and read everything just like find something you're interested in and it, it don't it doesn't matter what the person interviewing you is interested in yeah it's what you're interested in and mm-hmm. you know read a little bit around it and um it, you know, if you find something interesting, say why you find it interesting. Um, whatever it is, you know, uh, it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, if you if you find something really wacky interesting, <laughs> just say it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, because uh, you know, you, you, you guys are the future. You guys are going to uh, guide medicine, um, <laughs> not me. Yeah. So keep up with the reading of our journals. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Keep definitely. up with keep keep up with the talking and keep smiling. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, smile goes a long way, definitely. <laughs> Good first impression. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, so uh, lastly, you are a well-known, successful surgeon. So what's next on your agenda? So what do you want uh, to do? Well, <laughs> uh, ski more. <laughs> Very of course, yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, th- there's lots of things I'd like to do. There's, you know, personally and professionally. Um, uh, but there is only so much time. Yeah. Um, so, I, I we have we have six kids of different ages, yeah. uh, twenty four to eleven. So yeah. I would want to try to make sure I spend as much time with them as possible. And coming out of COVID, I'd like to try to visit my family around the world. Yeah. Um, I would something I haven't been able to do is do much in the way of sort of charitable type of work, and I'd really love to share some of my experiences and learn from people who are working in different healthcare systems. So, and I'd really, in particular, I'd love to go to uh, India and the countries around it. I'd I'd love to visit Nepal, for example. I'd love to go to Pakistan. and um, uh, find out more about that place. I, I, I was born in Indian Punjab, yeah. uh, but Punjab as a state is actually divided between two countries, uh, yeah. Pakistan and India. And I think, I think it's, it's, you know, it, it happened, but I think part of it is really sad yeah. um, because, you, you know, it's the East and West Germany, North and South Vietnam, North and South Korea, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, when the, the language is the same, the food is the same, so much of the culture is the same, yeah. and yet you're divided by this border. So I, I'd love to, you know, do something with that. Um, I, one of the things that I'm particularly passionate about is the poor treatment of some of the people who work in the British healthcare system that are not yeah. NHS staff, they're contract workers working yeah. for various companies. And I'm not against the companies. I think the companies are really, they're doing a great job. But I actually wonder sometimes if it's the NHS that has set out terms and conditions yeah. that are inferior, that the companies are just fulfilling. Mm. So I don't, 
I don't like it when I find out that, um, for example, portering staff don't get the same sickness benefits as as me yeah, or as a nurse, even though they're in a frontline role. I just yeah. think that's not okay. Mm. And unfortunately, that is tied up not only with money, but it's also ch- tied up with gender mm. and culture and ethnicity because people in those jobs are more likely to be women or minorities and so there's an undercurrent of a racial issue in that which i don't like uh, in a society that is that that needs its diversity to be strong Mm. um and then surgically we're at a very interesting time whereby we are moving towards the greater use of robotics and in my own field, minimally invasive, well, we're already in the minimally invasive surgery area, era, but in the lung sparing surgery era. Yeah. And I'd like to see more techniques involved with that and, and more sophisticated use of organ replacement. Mm. Um, so... I, I won't be able to work with all of that in my time, uh, yeah. but I would like to uh, see continued progress in all of those areas. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We wanted to say thank you very much for coming on the show today. Um, it was a pleasure having you on the show. We learned so, so much, much by yeah. speaking today. We were your host, Brenda. I'm your host, Cece. <laughs> thank you for coming to Medicine Medicine. Bye. Bye, guys.